If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. If you turn to Acts chapter 9. Quite a dr- dramatic chapter. Beginning of verse 1, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as He journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. By the way, this is a main Instance and example how it is that Paul could claim that he was an apostle, for he had spoken to and been in the presence of the risen Christ and was instructed by the Lord. So as this as the disciples had dispersed, going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then the outermost parts, a pursuit had begun. None other than Saul of Tarsus, who had previously, with some of his cohorts, debated with Stephen and lost. And so he guarded the men's coats so that they they had more freedom to move their arms so they could throw the stones at Stephen with more velocity. Now he was doing everything he could to punish anyone, male or female, by prison and the threat of death. So full of animosity against the church and thinking that he was on a mission from God. He had, unbeknownst to him, become one of the people that in Acts chapter 4... In verse 24, they had prayed against. Now, we look at this and we might say, well, it, it seems like it's a, 
a specific prayer for a specific time, but it, it includes the enemies against the church. And if you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 24, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you're God who made he heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David had said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? That's what, that's what Saul was doing, plotting a vain thing. The kings of the earth <clears throat> took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that they with all boldness, with that with all boldness, they might speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done throughout <clears throat> or through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Well, this is what's been happening. As they, they went from place to place, as they were being dispersed, everywhere they went, they spoke the gospel and preached the gospel with boldness, even in the midst and fear of what is happening. And in that prayer, there's look upon those... <clears throat> who bring threats. And so here, Saul is doing this very thing. He has become an enemy. His heart was dark, and he did not know it. And that is the case so often. There is darkness of the heart, but there is ignorance that it exists. There are four parts, actually three parts that we'll get to today and made them all out of alliteration. So there's the intention, the interruption, and then the interruptor. So there's first the intention. Notice in verse 1, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. You see in those words that he's almost rabid, almost foaming at the mouth. His hatred was so strong. It was as if he were growling every single day and every breath, every thought was consumed with just one thing, the destruction of the way. You know, the idea of breath is life. And so as he's breathing threats, this is his, his life at this point to destroy the church of Christ. So much was he in this obsession that he wanted permission or help even from the synagogues in Damascus. Now notice there in verse 2, he has letters uh, from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Notice there's the plural form there, synagogues which means in Damascus there, were, there was a good number of Jews because they had more than one synagogue. And so 
It pointed to the fact there were many Jews in that city and Paul probably felt like this would be a good place to go where he'd get a lot of help in what he was trying to do. Now we don't know how many Christians were there in Damascus, but it seemed to Paul worthwhile to travel over 160 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus to stamp out this way. Now that's what we find in verse 2. He asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, the way. Now here is an interesting name. It was most likely one that believers had applied to themselves. There are other names that believers were given that were were names that were given to them by those who hated them. But this seems to be one that they took upon themselves because in light of what Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. So they were following the way. So that's not a term of derision. That's more a, a statement of, of who they believed in. It is a name that I'm surprised shows up so often. Acts chapter 16 and verse 7 speaks of the way of salvation. But if we turn to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19 and verse 9, but when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew. Uh, in verse 23 of the same chapter. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. And in Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22 and verse 4. Paul would say, I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering prisons, both men and women. In chapter 24, in verse 14. But I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things that were written in the law and the prophets. And then in verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. So it shows up quite often, perhaps more than we, we even think about. And hopefully we are people of the way and not wayward. Paul's intention was clear. Destroy the way. Bring the people bound and tied up in chains to Jerusalem. But something happened. In verse 3 of chapter 9, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. That's important. He came near Damascus 
And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. So if it's a 160 mile journey, maybe he got to mile 159. But he never made it to the city to do the things that he wanted to do. He would make it to the city. But something would happen now that would change his life and change him forever. It was at a time of day, it was about midday, because that's what he would say later as he's giving an account of what's happened in another place. That it was midday that this took place. And that really then helps us to see that if it was at midday, that the light that he saw was really, really an intense light. An intense light that was so much brighter than the midday sun. And it shone all around him. And we see that the light was from heaven. Now we saw how last time through Philip, Jesus was directing the growth of his church. Now we will see Jesus protecting his church. What made the light so bright? Well, it was he who appeared. It was Christ. It was the glory of Christ that multitude multiplied the intensity of the light. The light was magnified by his glory. And Saul, in the only thing that he could do, he falls to the ground and probably falls face first. It's interesting. The light, it said, was from heaven. What's the first thing that God said when it came to creating the world? Let there be light. Let there be light. So the first words that God said in creation was let there be light. And when it comes to our recreation, it is let there be light into their soul into their understanding. He sends forth light. And this light was symbolic and a foretaste of what was about to happen to Saul. And the light was accompanied by a voice. Now this self-conceived mighty warrior for God is now brought low. And now the most convicting thing that he could probably have ever heard. Saul, Saul, similar to the way that God would call the prophets using their voice twice. Why are you persecuting me? Let's think of how those words must have entered into his ears and his heart. If you wonder if union to Christ is a sound biblical doctrine, which most definitely it is, look no further than here. 
For when Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He said very clearly, if you persecute my church, you persecute me. Well, we cannot and must not forget, particularly when we read such as a book of Revelation, we see clearly that the Lord will first and foremost bring vengeance against his enemies. And some will, as you hear around the throne, say, how long, O Lord? He will bring his enemies. And on the top of the list, he will go against those who have persecuted his church. So we have the intention. We have the interruption. And now he who interrupted. Saul, as he hears a voice, hears a charge. Now what we don't see in, in our English version is that Paul, it, so far everything's in Greek, but when he speaks to Paul, he speaks in Aramaic. Why would that be important? Well, not to just throw some trivia around, but Paul was raised in a very educational background. And as a young man, he was taught Aramaic. So this is adding to the personal aspect of what Jesus is speaking to him. And not knowing if he was hearing from God or from an angel... For up to now, he didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. He cries out, Who are you, Lord? Lord? He was in a trembling state of ignorance. He did not know, as John Gill says, the person nor voice of Christ. We might wonder if he was now beginning to put things together when he thought on the first question. The response comes to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See the repetition? Again, to make it know, known that if you are persecuting his church, you are persecuting him. Keep that in mind, my friends, when you look around and you see people trying to do this to the church or that to the church or from inside the church try to cause trouble. Remember that. Jesus takes that personally because of our union with him. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Then we hear probably what none of us would have expected. Verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, in light of that, with the persecuting, and Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? We might have expected Jesus to pronounce some kind of, of sentence on him, a sentence of destruction. But instead, it's a word of compassion. Who would have expected a word of compassion in the midst of that? He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. It's hurtful. Now, if you don't understand, here's, a, here's the thing. A goad was like a spear. 
And with it, if you were driving oxen, and oxen can tend to be somewhat stubborn and difficult, this spear not only had one point on it going up, but it also had a point going that way too. So you had the point going up and the point to the side. Well, the point was that as the ox stopped, you would jab the ox. And then if he kicked, you had that other point that you could put on his flank and cause him to stop kicking. So if the ox went to kick, he got more pain than when he was pushed to go. That's where we get our term, where he was goading him into something. It's hard for you to kick against a good... Paul, you're hurting yourself by what you're doing. You're hurting yourself by resisting me, opposing my people, opposing the gospel, opposing the undeniable miracles in the deep and rich and truthful doctrine. It's like to, you're jamming your foot into the point of a spear. And you're inviting eternal suffering upon you. Now Christ had intervened. Not only for the sake of his church, but also for the soul of this one who had sought to destroy it. In the midst of wrath, there was mercy. God had to intervene to save Paul. Now Paul's experience in, in many ways is not typical but in many ways, it's quite illustrative. The man who was full of himself, so sure of his righteousness and his place, is now face first on the ground asking, what am I to do? What, Lord? And having now for days to come be led by his hand. For all of us who are saved, God had to intervene. No one would know this better than Saul, who would eventually become Paul. Paul said, Romans 5, verse 6, when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. But note if you were, would, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Just, just that first verse if, by itself. You he made alive. He intervened. Why? Because you're dead. Dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we're all, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, 
who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, intervened, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In one other place in Titus, chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards us appeared, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He intervened. He intervened. That's an important aspect to understand because a lot of people don't get it. They've been taught that they're the ones who do it. And what a deformed idea of salvation somebody walks away with when they think, it was something that they did. No, we respond, but even that response is given to us by God. He intervenes. And that is so important to understand because salvation is of the Lord. We all have to be shown our inability to, to save ourselves. We don't have any ability to do that. That we need to be saved. That has to be shown to us. We don't think that way naturally. When we're walking the natural course of the world, we don't think about these things. Something has to intervene in our lives. And we will see next Sunday, Lord willing, how Ananias is used by God to be that who explains things to Saul. Something else to think about as we look at this. Jesus calls out, he says, Saul, Saul. He calls him in the midst of seeking to create mayhem in the church. On the way to treating Christ's people as criminals, our Lord knows who his enemies are. He not only knows who his enemies are, he knows where they are. And that should bring great fear into those who do not know Christ. He knows them by name, and he knows where they are. And he will deal with them. But as we close... I want us to see a double divine intervention. The Lord intervened on behalf of His church, on behalf of His people, on behalf of His body. The man who came to put His people in chains will Himself now have to be led into that place He went to conquer. He who came to capture was now Himself captured by grace. Then see the second intervention 
Jesus brought Saul from foe to follower. I want to say this as nicely as I can. And I want to be gentle in spirit. But how do so many people get the words that Jesus said to a church in the book of Revelation? How did they get those words so wrong? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. How, how that got twisted into people saying, well, Jesus stands at, your, at the door of your heart and knocks. He's talking, he's speaking to a church that feels like they don't need him. He's not speaking to individuals at that point. And let me ask you, if we're going to use some of this as an illustration of salvation, where was he knocking on the heart of Paul waiting for him to reply? He didn't knock at the door of Paul's heart. Well, if he did, then, you know, if he comes crashing in on Paul's life, isn't he violating the will of Paul, Paul's free will? Again, there's so much misunderstanding here. Because God, when Christ comes to somebody, he changes their heart. The new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel says, I will give them a new heart. And guess what happens? When you get a new heart, the will is changed. Because the will doesn't drive the heart, the heart drives the will. That's the confusion that exists in so many places. But the heart is the control module. And the will is controlled by the heart. If you change the heart, guess what? You will change the will. The will goes by what the heart desires. And if the heart now desires to please God, guess what happens to the will? It's bent in that direction. He changed the heart, and in so doing, he changes the will. Because the heart will always steer the will. And that's what happens and is happening in the midst of this. Paul is receiving now a new heart. He will love the Lord he hated. And he will love the people he sought to destroy. His will his life, his purpose, all changed. And if you think that's violation, then it's the sweetest and nicest and most necessary violation that could ever happen. Salvation, my friends, is and always will be a blessed divine intervention. Let's stand together for prayer.